All right, praise the Lord. Uh, Judges, you know, Judges is an amazing book. And this is part two of a two-part message I did called Christ is Victor. Remember that? Christ is Victor means Christ is, you know, basically speaks of him as being the victor, uh, the victorious one. And when we th- and it speaks of his to- atonement, and through his atonement, those who put their trust in him being set free from Satan's power. So oftentimes when we think of Christ's death, typically what we talk about, we emphasize in this fellowship a lot, is the aspect of his death, whereby uh, the most important part of his death is that the sinless Son of God, the God incarnate, took our sins upon himself, amen, to bear our penalty as a substitutionary or vicarious atonement in our place so we could be freed from the debt of sin as he bore it in our place and so we could have forgiveness of sins and therefore be justified, declared righteous before God, reconciled to God, filled with his spirit, his love, him living in our hearts, uh, and heaven bound, amen, to be with him forever. So we speak of his death as a substitution, substitutionary a propitiation, a payment on our behalf. And that's so biblical. Even though many have forsaken the teaching of the meaning of his atonement in regard to his substitutionary atonement, which is very, very heartbreaking because they're missing the heart of the gospel there. Uh, but many who emphasize the fact that he died in our place to take our sins miss a whole other aspect of his atonement, and that is Christus Victor, that he, through his atonement, he set us free from the powers of darkness, and that before we were saved, we were under Satan's power, because it says, whatever you submit to, you become a slave to, amen? And we submitted to sin and, and the power of Satan, and we're under Satan's power. We're in bondage to satanic principalities and powers. And when Jesus died, through his substitutionary atonement, through pain for our sins, amen, we're no longer under that condemnation where we'll be set free from the power of Satan. And it's through his cross, the scriptures are very clear, that he gave us victory in Hebrews chapter 12, or chapter 2, verse 15, 14 and 15, point this out very clearly, that uh, those who had the fear of death and were under the power of death and the power of Satan, uh, that Jesus, it says, through his cross, gave us victory over Satan and his powers uh, because we're now free from the slavery once we're in when we were under the power of death. Because now we have, if you're a believer, you're trusting Jesus, you have eternal life. Well, I went through a bunch of scriptures in Christus Victor a couple weeks back. And then last week we looked at 10 benefits of the resurrection. And just before that, uh, 10 evidences of the resurrection of Christ. And this time I said, I said I'd get back to do a part two, which would be a typology, a picture of Christus Victor. Now there's an incredible picture. There's more than one. There's several pictures of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Isaac being a picture of that, right? Abraham taking Isaac and then God telling him not to kill Isaac because he would provide the lamb. Amen. Which would be a substitute for all of us, which is the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately. He gave him a lamb at that mountaintop, but then after he gave him a ram, a male lamb with horns, and they slew it instead of Isaac, or Abraham did, uh, the Lord said, the mount of the Lord will be provided, speaking of Christ in the future. And that would be a substitutionary atonement, just as that ram stood in for Isaac, so Jesus stands in for all of us and takes our sin, so we don't have to be separated from God forever, amen? Well, there's an incredible picture of Christus Victor which I think you'll appreciate. I, I certainly appreciate it. It's one of my favorite pictures, although it seems such, like such an unlikely place to find a picture of Christ. But it's the most powerful picture. I, could, I don't think you could drop a more powerful picture of Christus Victor than what we're going to look at. But 
I want you to keep in mind that on the road to uh, Emmaus, two of Jesus' disciples, after his resurrection, were mourning. You remember that you know, he was crucified, and he came alongside them without them knowing who he was, and he opened up their eyes to see the Scripture and revealed himself to them. And it's interesting because when he did this, it says, uh, and he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you. This is in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 45. All, and all things must uh, be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. I mean, the prophets all spoke about him. Then he opened their understanding and they, that they might understand the scriptures. It's a great thing to do when you're praying. Say, Lord, open my understanding. And Father, we pray that you'd open our understanding, that we understand the scriptures. And said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise again the third day, and, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. But it says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he was able to show through Genesis, you know, Exodus, through all the scriptures in the Old Testament. It takes the three uh, units of the Old Testament, the law, you know, the first five books, the Psalms, you know, the biggest book in the Old Testament, and it says the prophets as well. And so that must have been one crazy, amazing, mind-blowing Bible study for these guys. But one of the things I have no doubt in my mind, I'm not saying he went through all the types and pictures of himself, but there were types and pictures of Christ throughout the Old Testament. And when we talk about a type or a picture of Christ, we're talking about a person, a thing, or an event that portends or foreshadows, that prefigures what Christ will do or who he is or what his work will be or things surrounding his work and so forth. And God draws so many of these pictures, you just shake your head. I mean, I do over and over again. In fact, I can't doubt by the grace of God the Scripture. You can't doubt the Scripture if you're honest with it when you start seeing typologies because they're just so, no human being could do it because these pictures of Christ are, are given hundreds or thousands of years before he comes into the world. And now you could say if the Old Testament was written before Jesus died, right, and it was written before the New Testament, which it couldn't have been because the New Testament quotes the Old Testament so often. But for the sake of argument, you could say some Christians got all these events, you know, wrote about all these different events and then pretended they came before Christ as pictures. But that would be ridiculous. You can't do that because guess what? The Jewish scriptures, we have records of them, uh, you know, Septuagint and elsewhere and Jewish writings and the Mishnahs, which are the commentaries of scripture, uh, fragments, all kinds of Old Testament stories that are owned and had, or that belong to the Jews to this day who rejected the Messiah when he came. And, they, and these pictures foreshadow him before, they, before he ever comes into the world. And they show who he is over and over and over again. And it's just a blow mine. So, uh, you, so you have these types, these pictures of Christ. From the very get-go, Adam is a picture of Christ. Romans 5.14, the Apostle Paul says, Adam is a, is a type of the one who was to come. That is speaking of Jesus. Adam himself was a picture of Jesus. You know, he was a type. He was the ruler, naming the animals, amen. He had a bride that was co-ruling with him. Jesus has the, his bride. And I'm not gonna get into all the pictures of Adam because I wanna spend time on Samson. 
okay? And Samson is one of the last places people would even think to look for a typology or a picture of Jesus because he had such a loose and immoral life, you know. But God uses double types, okay? Because God is so profound. Uh, dual types, double types, where he'll use somebody as a picture of two t- separate things. What do I mean by double type? For instance, I believe Jonah was a, is a double type. We know Jonah was, Jonah was a type of Christ, amen? How do we know that? Jesus himself said, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. By the way, could God do that? Is the creator of the universe powerful enough to do that? Amen. Obviously. If he, can create every, if he can create everything, any miracle is possible after that, right? And, and he did it for a reason, though. But as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And he's talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Jonah came back, right? And he preached repentance, amen? For 40 days, he warned. By the way, Jesus spent 40 days with his apostles afterwards. We can get into Jonah, but I'm just going to say this about Jonah. We always think of Jonah as a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But you realize Jonah was not just a picture of the second Adam, the last Adam. He's called the last and the second Adam, Jesus. But he's also a picture of the first Adam. He was a picture because it was through his sin that the whole boat, everybody on the boat was in trouble because of him. Remember that? They're, they're like, we're going to sink. What's going on here? You know, Jonah, wake up. Pray to your God. What's going on here? And then Jonah is the one that got them in trouble. Well, guess what? The first Adam got us in trouble, but we've all joined him in sin. So we're all accountable for our sin, right? So Jonah goes from a picture of getting everybody in trouble, the first Adam, right, to what? Becoming a picture of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I believe Samson is a picture of the first Adam. He has a miraculous birth, you know, uh, uh, because his mom is infertile and he shouldn't even be able to be born. Adam is, is created out of the dust. And he's a radical sinner, man. He just blows it big time. It breaks his covenant with the God he has. But then he becomes this also profound picture of the second Adam of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like Jonah. It's mind-boggling. And I personally believe when you come to fellowship, it shouldn't just be one or two verses and just a few cute stories and then have a good day. No, man, God wants to change us, amen? He wants us to learn. He wants to challenge us. He wants to shake us and get us to wake up to who he is and how awesome he is to where we become fixed on him and the hope of eternal life, and knowing him, because knowing him and having the hope of eternal life, have a relationship with him, trans- transcends by far and away, infinitely, anything that Satan can offer you in this world. So we come, and I, so I hope you're ready to be challenged to think things through, right? Right? Amen? In fact, that's why most of you, if not all of you, are here, because you want to get in the Word together and grow together. Well, Samson's a very unlikely picture, but he is one of the most vivid, I think, there's a lot of vivid pictures in the Old Testament, but he's one of the very vivid pictures of, of not just Christus Victor, but of Christ in various ways. Now, go to the book of Judges and go to chapter 2, because the book of Judges comes on the heels of the, of the Torah, the first five books, called the whole Old Testament Tanakh, but the first five books is the law, or Torah, and after you get Joshua, or I should say Joshua, gets them into the promised land. Moses brings them up to the edge of the promised land. Joshua, but he can't bring them into the promised land because he's blown it. Because he's a picture of the law. The law can't get you into heaven, amen. And Moses can't get them in. But Joshua, whose name is Yeshua, or basically just like Jesus, you know. Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua, which is Joshua. 
And Joshua is a picture of Christ, and he's able to bring them into the promised land. But after Joshua dies, guess what? Just as Deuteronomy chapter 32 says, in the Song of Moses prophesies that they would go astray, they'd go after other gods because they're fallen humans, they're descendants of Adam, and they would be rebellious. So God rose up before he brought King Saul, when they were crying for a king, and King David and the kings, in that period before that, he brought forth judges. And these judges were judge slash saviors. Okay, they would save them from the ugliness and the captivity they'd go into. Because there was this, there's this pattern you see throughout the book of Judges. Is his people, you know, are delivered. Just like they're brought to the promised land. They're given some prosperity. They're blessed. It goes to their head. They get their eyes off the Lord. They begin to live for themselves. And then God disciplines them. And after they begin to worship idols and false gods, he brings, he allows them to go into captivity often where another nation begins to uh, put their heel upon them and oppress them and make them serve them. Then after, in their oppression, just like happened earlier in Egypt before they went into the promised land, they cry out to God for deliverance and God rises up a judge. A powerful person who has the anointing of the Holy Spirit to lead them and to save them from that captivity. Then they get saved from that captivity. They're thankful. They're praising the Lord. Then as a nation, they get their eyes off the Lord again and they go back into a life of sin. And the Lord brings up another judge. And you see that pattern repeated over and over again in the book of Judges. And at the end of the Judges, it's a very sad verse, one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It talks about how everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Just doing their own thing. Oh, it's, it seems like it's good to rape a woman. Oh, okay. Or I mean, there's some horrific stories in Judges of how wicked people were. And that's kind of how it is today in our culture, isn't it? That's why we need the ultimate judge slash savior. You can already see where this is going because these judges slash saviors are pictures of the ultimate judge and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting because we read in verses 11 and 12 with some of that backdrop. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. And these are the false gods, the Baals, the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, their God, of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. And then he would bring discipline on them in captivity. But then when they cried out and repented, he'd bring a judge or rise up a judge to deliver them. We read in verses 16 through 18, then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. It talks about how they'd worship these false gods and he had to deliver them. Then verse 18 we read, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. The Lord was with the judge, that's key. And delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity or compassion by their groaning because of those who pressed and afflicted them. Remember, the Lord chose the people through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now they're in the promised land. And through these people, the Jews, he's going to bring forth the Messiah. And through the Messiah, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Satan wants to destroy those people, the Jews, because he doesn't want the Messiah to uh, be born through them. And he's just, he's a hater. So it's interesting. Uh, Samson gets chosen as this kind of double type. Now, Samson, everybody knows, is this guy with huge muscles that you know, made Arnold Schwarzenegger look like, look like a dwarf and just went through everybody around at will and everything. But that's not the case. That's not the, I don't believe it was the case, personally. Because if he was built like, look at that dude, man. Nobody would think, what's the secret of his strength? They think, that dude's just bad, man. 
they'd say, look at how God made that guy. He's so tough and strong. And that's not how it was. They want to know the secret of his strength. And God used Gideon. You remember Gideon? Right? Gideon, and then he didn't want him to have all the thousand people. He reduced his army to 300. Why? That's, that's in Judges. Gideon's one of the judges. So God would get the glory. So I think the same thing is going on. You know, they want to know the power of his strength. You know, when he is taken captive later in his story, a little boy leads him by the hand, which is kind of like a mockery. Look, this guy's nothing without the power of God, you know? So I don't think he would be a guy like, like, man, that guy's tough, man. Stay. He'd be a guy, you could take him to, whoa, what, what, what's, what's the secret, you know? And it's interesting because this is how the Lord received glory through him. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Samson, uh, Samson is put in the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, and what more shall I say? For a time, well, time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, or David, and Samuel, and the prophets. After he lists a bunch of the exploits that were accomplished by faith. And, and in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, all these died in faith. Well, Samson had a horrible life. And thankfully, he came to his senses and returned to God at the end of his life. And he died in the faith. If anyone died in the faith, Samson died in the faith, you know, when you look at how he went out. So, but it's interesting. We're not going to have time to go through chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. Otherwise, it's going to have to be a several-part message. And I just want to do one. So I want to focus more on him as a typology. There's a lot we can learn for, the, for lessons against sexual sin in Samson, for sure. But I'm not going to be spending time doing that now because I'm preparing, I'm preparing a message for the men at the men's retreat on Samson, not in regard to the typology of the picture of Christ so much, but more as a picture of lessons as to live holy lives because there's sad consequences in his life because of his sexual sin. So that'll be, uh, what, a month and a half or whenever away, uh, a couple months away at the men's retreat, Lord willing. So, but I want to see him as a type of Christ. Judges chapter 13. So we're going to have to hop around a little bit. Verses 1 through 6. Let's look at the situation regarding his birth. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's verse 1 of chapter 13. And the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. That's Samson's daddy. And his wife was infertile. Now notice his wife is infertile. Infertile means you can't what? You can't have children. Now it's interesting. She's infertile and she can't have a, a, a child and had not given birth to any children. Verse 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, now you are infertile and have not given birth, but you will conceive and give birth to a son. Anybody see any pictures of Christ from the get-go here? Once you know, man, and you start reading the Old Testament through the New Testament eyes, everything just starts to pop out. And now he, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. For behold, you will conceive and give birth to a son and no razor shall come upon his head because he'll be under a Nazarite vow. And the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he will begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. I think it's interesting. He'll begin to save Israel because he's a picture of the ultimate savior. He won't ultimately save Israel, but he'll, he'll do some radical things. So it's interesting because this angel shows up and promises 
a son will be conceived. Amen? Now, isn't that exactly what we see with regard to Jesus? Mary is told that she's going to bear a son. But more than that, an angel shows up to Joseph in a dream because he's going to put her away and divorce her. Okay? And he, in, in those days, in biblical times, when you were engaged, it was, you had to get a divorce to get out of it. It was like being married, except it wasn't marriage yet, but it was, you were considered husband and wife to a degree, but you hadn't consummated it, but you had to get a divorce to get out of it. And he was going to divorce her, being a righteous man, an angel appears to him in a dream and says, not to divorce her because the child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's the only mention in the Old Testament, Samson, of a child that would be conceived, uh, that the Lord would move supernaturally to an infertile woman and conceive her, or conceive him, this child. Now there is Sarah with Isaac later, but that's announcing the conception, but announcing the birth. But it's similar, because that's also a radical picture of Isaac's, also a radical picture of Jesus, as you know. So it's quite amazing when you look at this. And then it says that, and, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is to Joseph in a dream, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because, she is con- she, uh, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's Matthew 1.20. Number two, Noah's wife was infertile and it was impossible for her to have a baby. So it wasn't just an angel showing up that's going to conceive. Number two, keep in mind, she's infertile. Well, guess what? Mary was a what? A virgin. She wasn't infertile, but it was impossible for her to have a baby as well without God's intervention. Number three, uh, well, Gabriel commanded that Joseph Mary uh, name the child Jesus, which means God saves and judges and judges Samson's to be a what? A savior to the people from the Philistines. So it's an infertile woman being promised by God through an angel of a conception of a baby that will be a savior. There's, there's, number, there's so many types. When people say there's 300 prophecies about Jesus' birth and his life and his death, burial, resurrection of the Old Testament, that I hear the critics say, no, nah, there's not 300. And then you have some Christians say, well, maybe there's not 300. And I'm like, no, you're, both, you're all wrong. It's probably 3,000 and more, far more, when you consider the typologies. And you break them down. It's a blow mind. I could show you almost 100 or so just in the life of Joseph, you know, being rejected by his family and so forth. There's a picture of Christ. So I believe there's thousands of prophecies of the Messiah, just his first coming in his life, death, burial, and resurrection in the Old Testament. When you consider typology, which to me are some of the most striking of the, of the prophecies because God takes people and uses their lives and uses their wills, right? Knowing what they're going to do in certain circumstances and weaves pictures of Christ throughout, which is just mind-boggling. Now, verse 6 of chapter 13 Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. So I did not ask him where he came from, nor uh, did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a, a son, and you shall not drink wine, nor strong drink, nor say any unclean, or nor eat, I'm sorry, any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. To the day of his death. So even while the baby is in her womb, she's not supposed to do these things because he would also be participating in those things unwillingly, of course, but he's going to be a Nazarite of God. And Samson was consecrated from the womb, 
supposed to be from the womb to the tomb. And it's quite amazing when you look at this. Now, we do know that uh, Isaac was born supernaturally when Sarah was too old. So in this case, you have a woman who's young enough but infertile, and you have this miraculous birth. With Sarah, you have a son, by the way, who's given his name before he's born, just as Jesus was given his name before he's born. And it's Abraham, who's the father of the nations of Israel. His son uh, is given a supernatural birth because Sarah is 90 years old. She can't have a baby. And all of a sudden, she conceives. And that baby, that, little, that Isaac, grows into a young man. And we know he was a man when he was offered on Mount Moriah because he took the wood up the mountaintop, amen, to Mount Moriah. And Father, the wood, the, the fire, where's the sacrifice, you know? And he says, the Lord himself, Yahweh, will provide himself the sacrifice. And Yahweh provided literally himself as a sacrifice 2,000 years later on that same mountaintop. So you have all these incredible pictures of Jesus' Messiah. And by the way, it says, God says to him, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Remember that? Isaac. And sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And then when he gets up there, don't touch him. Amen. Now, it's interesting. He says, take your son, your only son. And we know that's the first, we see that in the Old Testament. And then when God says, I give, he gives his what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He says, this is my son whom I love in the New Testament. First time you see love in the Old Testament is, take your son whom you love, your only son. First time you see the word love in the New Testament, this is my son whom I love. Okay? And it's a three-day, three-night journey. I mean, it's, the pictures are just mind-boggling. But we see a very similar thing taking place. Now, so, we read in Judges chapter 13, verse 13, beginning there. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. It's because he wants to know. He's like, of course, he's skeptical. Like, what's going on here? You know, I want to see what's going on here. And then an angel appears to her husband, Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or st strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, let her observe all that I commanded. Now, of course, now, in the Nazarite vow, when you go back to the book of Numbers, you'll see that they weren't allowed to drink wine. They weren't allowed to touch dead bodies. They weren't allowed to cut their hair. So people would know and they'd see that person's, that, that man has not cut his hair. It's long, pretty long hair. You'd know he's a Nazarite, typically. That's a Nazarite. He's consecrated his entire life to serve God. And it says, nor eat any other clean thing, or there's a command in verse 15. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, now this is the angel of the Lord. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, an angel of the Lord is, de is identified as God in a pre-incarnation, Christophany or Theophany, Christ appearing in the form of a human body, but not born into a human body, because it's not the incarnation, just taking the form of a human body. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you, so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, uh, uh, Though you detain me, I will, eat, uh, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. Remember, in Genesis 19, it talks about the Yahweh in heaven, rain, fire, and brimstone in the presence of the Yahweh on earth. Two Yahwehs? There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yahweh is the family name of the one God who is manifest in three persons. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. <laughs> That's a trip. I mean, think about it. You have this 
angel of the Lord, an angel could mean angel by means of nature, meaning an angelic being that's created by God, or sometimes angel of the Lord is used of, just means messenger, like angelos, the Greek word in the New Testament, under the angel of the church of, and in that context it would be the pastors or leaders of those churches. Uh, so angel doesn't always mean a literal angel by nature, but it's a messenger of the Lord. And this one says his name is Wonderful. Well, who does that remind you of? His name will be called Wonderful, Mighty Counselor, Father of Eternity, you know, all these things. And I think it's just mind-blowing here uh, (laughs) that, look at verses 21 through 24. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die for we have what? We have seen God. Wow, yeah. So this is kind of interesting. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnation appearing. My name is Wonderful. Having Samson be born supernaturally as a picture of what he'll do several hundred years later. Isn't that a trip? Think about it. Because he's going to be supernaturally conceived in human flesh and actually born of the world. And then he'll actually be eating, you know, fish after his resurrection and, and so forth because he takes on a, 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 a human body that's conceived and real later on that's Jesus this foreshadows uh, the Lord Jesus Christ now as we look at this uh, he says for we have seen God then verse 23 but his wife said to him if the Lord has desired to kill us he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands nor would he have shown us all these things nor would he have let us hear things uh, like this at this time I love this woman because she's, and this shows you when, in biblical times, sometimes they presented as women had nothing to say. It's just the man and the man and the woman, you know, just be quiet and cook the food. No, that's not how it was at all, you know. Listen, this woman has some profound spiritual insight. I really love that when I was reading this. I was like, this is really cool that she has these insights. She's having greater spiritual insight than her husband at this point. And then we read in verse 24, then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up and the Lord blessed him. Wow, you know. Uh, this is just beautiful. Then verse 25, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. So the Spirit of God began to stir in Samson, began to use him. And he does all these mighty physical feats to deliver his people. And that's just what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. Before Jesus died on the cross, what was Jesus doing? All kinds of incredible miracles, right? And the scriptures tell us very clearly in Acts 10, 38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him by the Holy Spirit and his power and that he went out doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Now notice it says, you know that Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with what? The Holy Spirit. So God was, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is God in the flesh, but as a man, he's relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Even though he is God, he can exert his, his divine power, but he's using the power of the Holy Spirit as well. And we see in Judges 15, something really astonishing. Guess who's ruling Israel at the time? Who's ruling Judah? The Philistines. The Gentiles. When Jesus came into the world, was Israel ruling themselves? No, the Gentiles. These are just prophetic pictures, connections. The Gentiles were ruling, okay? The Romans were ruling over Israel. Israel had no king at this time in Samson's day. Hence, the reason God rose Samson up. Israel had no king in Jesus' day. You know, even though the Jews said, we have no king, you know, but, you know, 
And Herod was a half-breed, not respected as their leader. Caesar wasn't, they didn't deem him as their king either. They didn't have a, a true king from the line of David at the time. Now, uh, it's interesting because Samson is not supposed to touch anything dead, any dead bodies. Yet, Samson goes ahead and he finds a lion and he sees honey in the lion because a beehive has been formed in the lion's cavity. And guess what he does? He extracts the honey because it's sweet and tastes good from the lion. He begins to break his vows, okay? Because one of the Nazarite vows was you're not supposed to touch dead bodies, right? And in Judges 14, 12 through 14, listen to this. This gets really crazy. It says that Samson said to them, let me now propound a riddle to you. Because he's constantly messing with the Philistines. Let me propound a riddle to you. He's going to tell him a riddle. He tells these riddles. If you will indeed tell it to me within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. That's a big deal back in those days because they couldn't just go to Walmart or Kohl's or whatever. Verse 13, but if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 chains of clothes. And they said to him, propound your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. You all can break down this real, real easy because we just talked about the lion, right? Out of the eater, that would be the lion, came something to eat. He took the honey out. And out of the strong came something sweet, honey, right? Now, they're not going to be able to break this down, most likely. And uh, Samson is betrayed over and over again. He has different women in his lives, including harlots, okay? He's a loose guy uh, who is in big trouble with God, but he thinks he's getting away with it all. And, and he gets betrayed. And uh, he gets upset because the riddle is given away by one of these dalliances he has. And he gets all ticked off because they figure it out. They get it's revealed to them. And he goes, kills 30 Philistines and takes their clothes and gives them to these guys. That's sin. Okay, that's wrong. Uh, now, it's interesting. When he does this, God's going to use this, though. The Philistines were evil. And he's going to use this because God has a plan, which is really interesting that he even uses people's sin at times. Uh, I mean, he used the sin of the Romans and the Jews and all of us, really, that put Christ on the cross to bring forth our salvation. Amen. That doesn't loosen or lighten sin because sin will destroy you. It'll kill you. And you ought to hate it. And it destroyed Samson's life. He ends up in captivity and blind because of his sin. His eyes gouged out. Now, it's interesting that... Uh, he propounds this riddle that they're trying to figure out because there's meaning behind it. What did Jesus go around doing? Telling what? Parables, okay? This isn't an accident, you guys, okay? And the parables brought him ultimately to the cross because they confounded people and those who had ears to hear, he'd reveal the truth to babes. They'd be able to understand them. But those who were proud and arrogant, they wouldn't be able to see through them and they'd become more frustrated with him, and they'd nail, end up nailing him to the cross. Well, guess what? Samson ends up being captive, and they just, this becomes a, a root of annoyance for them, along with other things. And he kills countless of these Philistines. But you know, when he's killing these Philistines, he's doing things that aren't are necessary, they feel. His countrymen, his fellow Jews, like, what is he doing? He's got all this power, but he's like misusing it. And he's going to bring down the wrath of the Philistines on us because they're ruling over us. 
we got to get rid of him. we got to arrest this guy. And we got to hand him over to the Philistines. Sound familiar? The Jews did not think that what Jesus was doing and the miracles and everything, if he's, why doesn't he just, you know, just make it clear and just take over and wipe out all the Romans right away? But why is he doing it this way? He's going to get the Romans ticked off at us. Let's arrest him. Lest our whole nation perish, as Caiaphas said. It'd be better one man perish than the whole nation. And he didn't know he was prophesying, by the way. Interesting how God uses people when they don't even know they're being used often. Well, guess what? Jesus, in his death, died for the nation. Well, check this out. They arrest Samson, his fellow Jews in Judea, and hand him over to the Gentile Philistines. Just what, well, listen, Judges 14, if you check it out, verse 12 through 14, then Samson said to them, I'm sorry, Judges 15 now, 1 through, or 11 through 13. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, just as they did to me, so I've done to them. Then they said to him, we have come down to bind you that, you may, that we may hand you over to the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, now he could have just thrown them off, right? He willingly allows himself to be arrested. Does that sound familiar? That's what Jesus did. Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, no, but we will bind you tightly and give you into the hands, but into their hands, but we certainly will not kill you. Well, the Jews didn't kill him. They handed him over to the Romans, Jesus. Fast forward several hundred years. Then they took, then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. That is the idea that maybe he won't break these two brand new ropes, but he could have, but he willingly allowed himself to be bound. So the man the men of Judah were concerned that Samson would cause the Philistines to attack them, so the Jews were also afraid. In fact, we read in John eleven forty eight 48, of a similar situation with Jesus. If we, let, uh, if we let him thus alone, all the men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Do you catch that? If we leave him alone, everybody's going to believe in him, meaning all the Jews. They're going to follow him instead of Caesar or Herod, you know, the 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 imposter Jewish leader Herod or even, you know, not give at least some allegiance to Caesar, the head of Rome. So we read, if we let him alone, all men will believe on him and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Sound familiar? That's what was going on with uh, the Philistines. That's what was going on with Samson. So you have all these incredible parallels. Amazing. Now, the story gets becomes clearer and clearer, by the way. And uh, he's given, and now keep in mind, remember what happened to Joseph? He was a picture of Jesus, a coat of many colors. His brothers who made up the, they were the fathers of the 12 children of Israel. Remember that? They represented Israel and they rejected Joseph because he was the favored son. So Jesus is the what? Favored son. And guess who betrays him in the Old Testament, do you remember which brother betrayed him, what his name was? Judah. Judah. That's a Hebrew name for Judas. Judas betrays Jesus in the future. God gets, this, you put all the types together, it's like this perfect jigsaw puzzle, what's going to happen with hundreds and hundreds of details. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Now, because uh, <laughs> we read in uh, 
Genesis 37, 26 through 27, come and let us sell him into the, to the Ishmaelites. So they, they're the Jews and they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. Gentiles. Same thing, same thing going on. God is trying to say, come on guys, I'm making it so clear to you over and over and over again through these stories. My plan of redemption. Anyway, uh, we re- then we read uh, in Genesis chapter 39 verse 1 that Pharaoh's guard, quote, bought, uh, brought jo- or bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So we see the same kind of thing taking place. And I know I'm jumping from Joseph to Isaac back to Samson. These are all pictures of Jesus that have similar things going on. There's so many wonderful, wonderful pictures. Now, amen. So we see Samson, as strong as he is, he allows them to bind him. Look at John chapter, you don't have to go there, but in John chapter 18, verse 4, we read this. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, came out in the open and said to them, whom are you seeking? This is when they came to arrest Jesus. And Peter lops, you know, Malchus's ear off with a sword. You know, he meant, he said he's going to stand up and fight, and he did at first. And then he's like, what's Jesus doing? He's going to be crucified. And then he, you know, then he denied him three times. But verse 5, they answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. That's who they were looking for. And he said to them, I am. I am. It says I am he in your text, but the he is not in the Greek. Ego, Amy, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Wow. Now then, when he had said to them, I am, they drew back and fell on the ground. So obviously he had the power. If he could just say, I am, Ego, Amy, and all these legion of soldiers fall on the ground, he can get out very easily, Right? Well, he's not trying to get out of it. He came to die for us. He then asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you are seeking me, let these men go, in their, go their way. So they let them go, and they grabbed Jesus. And now back to Judges with regard to Samson. We read in, Sam, in Judges chapter 16, verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. He was a, he was a bad guy, you know. He went to his prostitute, a harlot, and he went to her. And when it was told uh, to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and laid in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, let us wait until morning light. Then we will kill him. Now, I think it's interesting. He constantly gets entrapped. And by the way, his sin leads to what should have been his death a number of times. Uh, And God frees him because God has a specific plan regarding letting Samson be an incredible picture of Christ beyond what we're actually reading here, which is mind-boggling enough, isn't it? So uh, they want to wait to kill him, but he goes in his harlot. And by the way, did Jesus go to a harlot? In another way, he did. Israel became a what? A harlot. Remember the whole book of Hosea? We, had, we studied the typology of Hosea you know, a month and a half ago or so, a month ago, a month and a half ago or so. And Hosea was called to marry a whole prophetic book. And his name also means he saves, right? Jesus' name, Yeshua, it's very similar to Yeshua, Hosea and in the Hebrew. And Yeshua means God saves. Hosea means he saves, which is a picture of Yahweh becoming a man because he marries a prostitute, Hosea. And God says, I'm having you marry this, this woman, this adulterous woman, who leaves him and forsakes him. And he, remember the names of the children he has? Not my child. The names of the kids. Like pretty heavy. God's saying, because this is what my people have become a harlot. And then, guess what? She becomes a slave. Loses everything. And then Hosea buys her off the slave market. Pays for her. God becomes 
Yeshua, the God-man, God saves, amen, for Israel comes to the heart of his people, amen, to save them, and he pays for her on the cross with his blood, amen. Are you with me? So God uses this sinful man who goes to a harlot for the wrong reason as a picture of the one who goes to the harlot Israel for the right reason to buy her back because she once belonged to him and she fell and to save her from her sins. It's all quite amazing. Hosea 1-2 says, when the Lord began to speak to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So when Samson was there, they were committing harlotry. That's why they were in trouble with the Philistines. And what's interesting is, is it says in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 2 of Israel, but you have played the harlot with many lovers, God says to her. In Ezekiel 16, 28, you also played the harlot with the Assyrians. So his people had become a harlot. And God came to the harlot to save her from her sins. Jesus went to the harlot to redeem her. Matthew 21, verse 32 says, Jesus said to her, truly I say to you, tax collectors, or say to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Why did they get upset with Jesus at times? Because he would talk to tax collectors, because he talked to drunkards, because he would talk to prostitutes to bring them to truth, okay, which is quite interesting. And he would deliver them from spiritual adultery, like Mary Magdalene. People say she was a prostitute. There's no scripts that say that she was a prostitute, but she was possessed by seven demons, so she'd open herself up to demonic forces. Um, and God, Jesus, delivered her from these things. Now, he's betrayed by his own people. He, he, Samson was betrayed a lot, man. But he's betrayed by his own people numerous times, and he's betrayed at this point, right? Handed over to the Gentiles or the Philistines. We read in Judges 16.3, Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight, he rose and took hold of the doors of the city gate. He wants to be arrested because he's looking for an occasion to get to the Philistines when they're not expecting it. And at midnight, he rose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. Now, this is guy's a strong dude, man. Can you imagine that? City gates are, are heavy. He's pulling up the... This is, man, I hope some of this is on videotape, Lord. Then he put them on his shoulders. He put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite of Hebron. Now, isn't that interesting? After Jesus is betrayed by his own people, think about it. He carries some wood up a mountaintop too, doesn't he? And it's kind of interesting because Jesus talked about the gates of hell. I will build my church and the gates of hell, or Hades, will not prevail against it. What are the gates of Hades? The Jews in those days, you can go to Capernaum, you could go uh, to the gates of Pan, you can be in Israel and you see these huge, like, you don't have time to get into it, called the gates of Hades. And it represented death in the realm of death and how when you're dead and your spirit is in Hades, there's no life, there's no chance. And biblically speaking, we're under the gates of hell or Hades before Jesus died for our sins. Amen? He had to set us free from Satan's power. And guess what? When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, what happened? Remember what he said to John the apostle when he appeared to him in Revelation chapter 1 on the, on, at the Isle of Patmos when John had been banished there by Domitian and he's there and he gives him the book of Revelation. 
He sees his face shining like the sun at noon, falls on, his, on the ground, and he puts his right hand on him and says, Fear not, I am the first and last, Jesus says. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and death. By taking the sins of the world and taking the cross up the mountain, he was taking the gates of the city and destroying them. Just as those city gates were now open to the Jews to leave the captivity of the Philistines, so Jesus opened the gates of Hades. And the Bible says that after he died on the cross, he went to the lower parts of the earth and delivered and set captivity captive in his train. Amen? So you just see Samson carrying this huge wood up this mountaintop, right? It's a picture of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. And it gets heavier. It gets heavier. So, and by the way, this happens right after Samson is betrayed. It's, there's many pictures of the gospel throughout uh, many of these books, not just the climactic parts of uh, these characters in these books often. Jesus went up to the top of Mount Moriah with the wood. Amen? And of course, he had lost so much blood because he'd been whipped several, more than one long whipping. He had more than what you typically get and, you know, smashed in the face over and over again and crown of thorns shoved into his head and and he lost so much blood even in, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he lost blood there too. And so, you know, Simon ends up carrying his cross the rest of the way. Now, it's interesting that uh, we read in Luke that, well, in the narrative as you go through the book of Judges, Delilah, the Philistines go to Delilah and they offer her, because that's one of the women he ends up with, and Delilah was his undoing, right? Goes to Delilah, uh, uh, and she starts messing with him, trying to figure out the secret of his strength. And she, he's like, oh, if you weave my hair together, I'll lose my strength. She weaves it together. He wakes up. He's still got all this power. She's like, you don't love me. You would have told me the truth, you know. <laughs> like, you love him. <laughs> Give me a break. It's so ridiculous. It's like a lot of the love stories today. It's ridiculous, not real love. And it's quite crazy because when you think about it, she betrays him for money. Jesus was betrayed by Judas for what? For money. Okay? Come on, guys. These things aren't coincidences. It's amazing. Uh, so, you know, go to Judges 16, verses 4 and 5. It says, After this it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. 16.4 of Judges. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him, that he, we may bind him to afflict him. Then, he will each, uh, then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. It was for silver too, by the way. Matthew chapter 26, verse 14 and following. Then one of the 12, whose name is called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And they set out for him 30 pieces of silver. So from then on, Judas looked for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now I think it's interesting when you think of this is, is Judah, and why at that point does Judas do this? Well, this was God's timing to allow it, amen. The powers of darkness are raging at work and they keep trying to defeat the Lord just like humans do, but it's always futile because God's the, ex, the, the, the perfect master chess player amen and it's just interesting to me that judas was you know he wanted gain 
Because after three and a half years, he's obviously not taking over from the Romans. I'm not going to be ruling with Jesus over the Romans. I might as well get something out of this because it's, it's inevitable. I mean, he's, they're going to catch him eventually anyway. You know, he even admits he's dying. I'm not, we're not sure exactly what's going through Judas's mind, but he was, got possessed by Satan and he was enticed to do this. But this was all prophesied in the Old Testament in great detail through not just plenary, just verbal, clear, prophetic statements like Isaiah 53, all these verses that say exactly what's going to happen, but also through these types that just fill in gaps that are just quite amazing. Look at chapter 15, verses 50, 15 through 51. And this is after he said, you weave my hair together and she's all ticked off and you don't really love me. Then we read in verse 15, then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times. He did it three different times to her. And have not told me where your great strength is. It came about that when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him, that his soul was annoyed to death. So, verse 17. I'm not going to say anything about that. But, brother, sisters, be careful. You know, husbands too. Verse 17. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like other men. Now that's interesting. He makes it very clear. He's not this strapping, super strong dude. He's going to become just like the average guy without the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, when Delilah saw, because you see over and over again when you go through the narrative, which you don't have time to go through the whole thing, 13, 14, 15, 16, that before he does these feats over and over again, it says, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. And then he did these things. It's very clear. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, and by the way, he's blowing it too because he's having relationships with unbelievers, you know, harlots, uh, people that aren't Jewish as well. Come up once more. And he said, and he told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up, or the rulers of the Philistines same, came to her and brought the money in her hands. Wow, verse 19. She made him sleep on her, her knees. That way she can get to his hair, right? And called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Most people think she shaved it off, but she called for a man to do it while he lay there. Then she began to afflict him, which is interesting. And his strength, what? Left him. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from the sleep and said, I will go out as, this is what he was thinking, I'm going to go out as other times and shake myself free. This guy would have been an incredible running back if, you're, if he was live right now and you're drafting because the NFL draft's coming up, but not at this point. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. He didn't know that the Lord had departed from him, Yahweh. Verse 21, then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. Now he has no strength. He's like so vulnerable. And they're literally gouging out his eyes. And we'll be looking at these in the men's retreat when I go through Samson for practical lessons for the consequences of sexual sin. Okay? I'm looking forward to that. I've been working on that actually for a while. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. And he was a grinder in the prison. Now, it has to occur to a lot of you guys. When I go through this narrative, I'm like, I shake my head. I'm like, how could he be so dumb with Delilah saying this, right? I mean, you're like, why? I mean, it says he was annoyed practically to death. Okay, he's annoyed to death. But why would he give her just the straight answer, realizing that she's not a good woman? 
Why? Besides being annoyed to death. Well, you know why I think why? Because he's very, very human. Because he kept getting away with things. He wasn't supposed to touch wine. He throws a big feast, a Philistine feast, you know, for his wedding. And after he goes to a vineyard, we don't know if he drank wine or not. Some believe it suggests that. We can't be sure. He also touches dead bodies, which breaks his Nazarite vow over and over again. Remember the carcass of the lion? Wasn't supposed to touch the carcass of the lion. Oh, well, maybe it just meant human bodies. It doesn't specify that as only human bodies in numbers. But even if it did, guess what? He, was, he took 30 pairs of clothes off of 30 dead men. He was touching dead bodies. But guess what? I'm getting away with it. God must just love me so much that I'm special or something because I'm visiting harlots and God's not doing anything to me. And that's how sin works, man. People think, oh, I'm getting away with it. God's not doing anything. And then people get more and more brazen and think they can become more and more rebellious. Then, bam, be not deceived, the Bible says. God is not mocked. He that sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap what? Corruption. Don't think you can mess with God. And the Bible warns in the book of Romans that God's grace, it says, you know, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, but it warns that you can misuse his grace and think that that means that you can abuse grace. And in Romans and elsewhere, 2 Peter, Jude, it warns about abusing grace. And if you think grace means you can just do whatever you want, you have another thing coming. So if you're a man and you're saying, man, I've done this and this in my life, and, or a woman even, and, my, and, and you know what, nobody knows about it, I've been getting away with it, and, and you're being tempted to do, go into further sin, Look what happened to Samson. One day he thinks he's getting away with things, and I believe that's why. I believe personally that's why, one of the reasons why. Not only was he annoyed to death, but he also thought, man, it's a very human thing. Well, God hasn't judged me yet. He's not judging me. Wow. And you begin to get, think you have even more freedom to rebel against him. And then before you know it, your eyes have been gouged out, and you have no strength. Don't mess with God. And don't love sin. Hate sin. Amen. Hate sin. Because guess what? I mean, Samson had broken his other, at least one of his other vows, touching, there's only three. Now, and also he broke his vow with regard to his hair. Well, he didn't cut his own hair. He gave Delilah, who he knew was after his secret, so she could undo him. He thought he was just going to be in, invincible. And he basically set himself up to get a haircut. Might as well have made it just called, you know, you know, sports clips or whoever you know because that's basically what happened so be careful now in judges chapter 16 verse 20 we read she said the philistines are upon you samson and he woke from his sleep and he'll go as other times but it said the lord had departed from him if we continue to rebel against the lord he's patient for time but hebrews chapter 6 talks about those who had received the holy spirit but eventually they had killed, committed apostasy. And the Lord's Spirit is grieved at first with your sin. But don't think you could just run amok in sin and live in it and just think the Lord will be with you forever if you're in rebellion to him. Now, if you have been convicted of your sin and you ask the Lord to have mercy on you, you know, the, uh, the King David had fallen, fallen into grievous sin. But if he would have stayed in that sin, the Bible says, be not deceived, adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But David prayed and cried out to God, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That's biblical, you know. 
Why pray that prayer if it's not possible? Well, that's what happened to Samson here. And then if you go to Judges chapter 16, verse 22, we read, However, his hair on his head began to what? Grow again after it was shaved off. Now the Philistines are getting cocky. Let's get a little hair back. We got him, man. He can't even see now, you know? Verse 23, Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice, for they had... They said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country, who was slain, who has slain many of us. Now, Dagon was a demon god. The Bible says the gods of nations are demons. They worship this demon god. He was a merman. Not a mermaid, but a merman. He was a fish god. And ancient depictions of him by the Assyrians that we can see to this day, if you just... Google image it. Don't do it now. In the message, but you'll see a guy with half his torso and his head is a man, and then his back end's a fish, you know, and it's pagan, you know. So uh, they worship this demon god, and they're giving praise to this demon god. Then we read in verse tw- twenty-five. It so happened when they were in high spirits that they said, "Call for Samson, and he, that he may amuse us." So they called Samson from prison. And he entertained them, and they made him stand between the pillars. So the pillars would be in the middle. The scriptures tell us it was in the middle of their huge temple. And he's amusing them. His hair is growing back. And, but a little boy is leading him, you know, and they're mocking him. And that's interesting because what did they do with Jesus? What did the Gentiles that the Jews handed him over to, to do with Jesus? They mocked him. They dressed him up like a king, right? And they put a, a crown of thorns on him and a royal robe and and they said they wanted to see his power. Come on, if you're the son of God. They put a bag over his head, remember? That's when they'd, bam, hit him in the head. Bam, over and over again. Okay, tell us who, which one of us hit you. Prophet? I mean, if you're really a prophet, you've got these powers. Where, where's that power now? And that's kind of what they were doing with Samson. They're mocking him. Where's your power? Can you guys see this? It's mind-boggling. Never doubt the word of God. This wasn't written after Christ. Would it be this, this picture that someone's trying to draw a picture of Christ? It would be profound if it was written after Christ. Oh, that's a pretty heavy picture. It's written way before him like all these other things, you guys. Wow. I'm sorry. I know I'm not the only one that just trips out on typology. I love it. Uh, now, it's interesting. Look at chapter 16, verse 25. It so happened when they were in high spirits that they said, Call him, and then they're doing this. They put him between the end of verse 25, between the pillars. Okay, now that's the picture of Jesus. Okay, look at chapter 16, verse 26. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women. Remember that number, 3,000. Men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. They're on the roof. They're up high looking at Samson. Oh, he's been doing some amusement, you know, entertaining them. They get careless. Let me lean against the pillar. He wants to feel the pillars. Then Samson called, the, uh, called, upon, called to the Lord and said, it's the first time you see Samson calling upon the Lord like this. For a non-selfish reason, I should say, you know. And he should have been doing this earlier. And he would have had deliverance from his temptations and everything. But God knew the man he was picking and what he would do. And it would, he'd work it into a picture of Christ. Then Samson called the Lord and said, Oh Lord, God, please remember me. And please strengthen me just this time. 
So he really wasn't getting full strength back, obviously. Oh God, that I may once, once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. So even this, he wants to get back at them for his two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them. Now, what's he doing? He's got, he wants to you know where the pillars are, and now he's pushing on the pillars like this, right? In the form of a what? In the form of a cross, like Christ on the cross. And he's going to sacrifice himself to bring down the temple of Dagon, the demon gods, and the enemies of God. Pretty heavy when you think about it. Then Samson called the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, please. And then we read uh, verse 29. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and embraced himself against them, and one in his right hand and the other in his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he, and he bent with all his might. So the house fell on the lords of all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed. Now this is verse, verse 30. The end here is so powerful. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those what? Whom he killed in his life. Wow. What's this a picture of? He's destroying the enemies of God. When Christ died for our sins, he paid for our sins, but he's also destroying the power of Satan and the demons over us who held us bound. We read in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, having canceled, that's Jesus, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. When he died, he canceled out that debt that we had to God, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Listen to verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities... He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So through the cross, Jesus triumphed over the principalities and powers, the demonic powers. Through Samson's death, he triumphed over the temple of Dagon, the god Dagon, and those leaders, the military leaders and so forth of the Philistines that were against God's people and set his people free. So much so that in his death, he killed more people than he did in his life. Isn't that interesting? In Jesus' life, he was casting out demons left and right. Exorcism, amen. We mentioned seven out of Mary Magdalene. He was wreaking havoc on the enemy's kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. But when he died on the cross, boom, he defeated Satan, and he did more in his death on the cross to defeat the enemy than he did in his life. Are you with me? It's crystal clear. We have an awesome, 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 awesome God. And by the way, 3,000 of these people were killed, we're told. The 3,000, all the people were killed. On the day of Pentecost, when the resurrected Christ was preached, how many people got saved the first day? 3,000 were saved. I want to go on and on, but I'm trying to get done at 10.45, 15 minutes earlier than our old time. But I'll say this much. Jesus is coming back again, the second coming, amen? Because Samson just began to save Israel. Jesus died for Israel and the entire world, amen? And guess what? He's coming back as the ultimate judge slash savior. The first time he came, he died on the cross for our sins to save us, and he took judgment. He also came as the judge, but took the judgment that we deserved upon himself. When he comes back again, it says he'll appear a second time unto salvation as savior to everyone who believes, but it says he will judge the world in righteousness. He's going to come as the ultimate judge savior. Samson could never die for our sins, could he? He was not the righteous lamb of God, man. He needed to be saved himself. And he died in the faith, looking to Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, 
we have this radical enemy, Satan, who, destroy, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking to devour us, to destroy us. Amen? We're no match for him. We have to make sure that we've been saved by the precious blood of Christ. And that's why Revelation 12, 11 says, and they overcame him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto death. We have victory through the cross. Christus victor. Jesus defeated Satan and death through his substitutionary atonement on the cross. We have victory. Amen. What a blessed victory that is. And let's make sure that we recognize. You guys, there's a lot of things you're looking to do. Read the word of God, man. Say, God, help me be captivated more by your word and show me wonderful things in your word and help me study the old, not just the new, but the Old Testament. Old Testament is powerful, isn't it? Oh, I like to read about Jesus and stuff. Yeah, that's why I read the Old Testament too. <laughs> Amen. So he's all over the Old Testament in ways you don't see him in the new. And of course, I love the new. It just all goes together. Praise God, we have an awesome God. Amen. Can we all please rise as we pass out the cup and the bread?